Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the College Info Geek Podcast, the show that helps you become a more effective student. My name is Thomas Frank, and I am here with my good friend, Martin Bamey. Martin, what is up? What's going on, man? I'm just chilling, having myself some cherry blossom tea. Cherry blossom? Uh, keeping it real, probably. This is very different than my other podcast. I'm also drinking some uh, some Lapsang Souchong tea. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, it's basically the opposite, isn't it? Uh, why? Is yours like all sweet and light and flowery? No, I mean because we're drinking tea. Oh, yeah, and then on Listen Money Matters, I yep. like sometimes drink beer, but honestly, usually I drink tea. To be, <laughs> oh, It's okay. like the show that started out as a, hey, look, let's drink beer and, and talk about finance, but I just drink tea for the most part on that, so maybe That's it's not close as enough. It's It gives me none of the same feelings It's true. As, as beer. It's quite different. So this episode is going to be a little bit different. Um, because we aren't, we're not really tackling a topic specific to college. Um, this is a topic that I think goes into the living of a better life in general. Um, and basically what we're going to do in this episode is we are going to analyze a book that we both read called the art of loving from a philosopher named Eric Fromm. And I I think he published this like back in the 50s or something i feel like it was the 50s i didn't double check that but i i feel i'm gonna look at it there's gonna be lots of page turning sounds in this one yeah it looks like 1956 so story time um i was in new york a little while ago because turns out there are no good flights from des moines to vermont and uh, i had been hired to speak in vermont at a college and if i were to fly from des moines to vermont it would have been Literally 13-hour layover each way. And I don't like sleeping in airports. So uh, my the co-host of my other podcast, Andrew, he happens to live basically in New York City, like right across the river in Hoboken, New Jersey. And I emailed him and I'm like, yo, dude, uh, can I come stay a night at your place so I can do like a flight to New York and then a flight from New York to Vermont, which turned out to be cheaper than the direct flight and also had none of the... Uh, waiting in airports for 13 hours. And he's like, well, turns out we're going to be in Vermont like three days before you go there. So why don't you come to New York like a week early, babysit my cat and basically live in our apartment? And I'm like, all right. Yeah, that's a pretty awesome deal. Yeah, it was actually, it was really cool because the first time I ever went to New York, I picked the wrong place to stay. It was like a really, really How bad wrong? hostel. Um, it wasn't like a horror movie scene or anything, but it was like this just really cheap. It was like 60 bucks a night, which can get you basically the quarters of a king in certain cities around the world, but not in New York City. Uh, not, not in Manhattan, at least. So the place I stayed was like, they were like blaring music in the lobby. And then it was like, <laughs> uh, these really dingy shared rooms and the bed springs were so creaky that it was just terrible. And the bed was not even tall enough or like long enough for me. So I was like in the fetal position all night long. And so it basically sounds horrible. It ruined my first trip to New York. And I, I had just come from Tokyo. So I was like, you know, all impressed with how amazing Japan was. And then like New York just totally left the sour taste in my mouth. But I have since been back there three or four times And uh, I can tell you the place you stay has a large effect on your opinion of a city. Like it's very important, which is why I probably will go with Airbnb like forever when I travel, if I can, Uh, because it it really does make a difference. Anywho, you probably know that I cannot resist bookstores. And it's I don't know. I don't want to meet the person who can. Um. There is a bookstore in New York City called Strand, and it is it is the last vestige of what used to be called Bookway, I think what they called it. Uh, like many, many years ago, there was like this entire street in New York City with tons and tons of bookstores. And Strand is basically the last remaining one, the last one that holds out among the tide of Barnes and Nobles's. And uh, happened to go there. It's an amazing store. Not quite as cool as Powell's Books in Portland, but I would say it's a close second uh, for like biggest and coolest bookstore that I've been to. And I was going to buy this book called Mindware. And it was like a total typical me book. It was like uh, tools for thinking more clearly or something. But I don't like hardcover books because book jackets get 
destroyed so easily. So I put it down and I was like, oh, I'll do that later. Maybe I won't buy anything. And then as I was walking out, I just happened to see this book, Art of Loving, on, uh, on one of those tables that they use to try to get you to buy things on the way out, I guess. And picked it up and I was like, you know, the back sounds kind of interesting. It's not like I usually don't read philosophy, but I had a few relationships in college that broke up partly because of things I did wrong. And ever since then, I've been very, uh, very interested in, I guess, practicing the art of not making my girlfriend hate me. <laughs> that's a very important art. That's, yeah, I guess that's a, that's, yeah, that's a pretty important art. It's a pretty bad way of stating it. Um, Maybe a better way to say it is I, I just wanted to be a lot more deliberate about building a close and fulfilling and rewarding relationship with my girlfriend. And I kind of knew in my head from things I'd read in the past and from uh, just uh, experiences that love really isn't something you fall into. It's not like this, this, I don't know. It's not like what it looks like in the movies. It's not like, oh, you find the one person that's meant for you and then you're happy forever because this person's perfect for you. And I think there's so many messages in our society that kind of play to that vision of love, uh, that kind of pander to that vision where it's like, oh, it's going to be great and they're going to do so many things for you and you will be loved. And this book is like, the antithesis to that. It was this guy, Eric Fromm's attempt to convince you that no, love is an art. And as an art, it's something that requires active discipline and practice. Uh, and the book is basically like a breakdown of like the theory of why love is an art, what it's about, like what it's for. And then uh, it moves into a little bit of an interim chapter about why he thinks Western society is actually set up to discourage the practice of love um, and then the last and much uh, much more short than any other part of the book chapter is about the practice of it and I ended up learning that the practice of love according to to Eric Fromm is basically analogous to the practice of being a good person and improving your life in many different ways so I actually took a lot of lessons that can be applied to many areas of life it's not just about loving it's kind of like here's how to be a disciplined successful, uh, very deliberate person that lives with meaning and purpose dressed up in the language of love. That's kind of what I took from it. Is that, cause I mean, I kind of asked you to read it uh, potentially for the podcast, but is that what you got out of it as well? Yeah, a lot. I guess I got a lot of uh, a lot out of it in the last part as well, where he's talking about uh, the mastery mm. of the art of love because... I really liked all the comparisons to the mastery of love as to the mastery of any other art. Like, mm -hmm. it's not something... You can't just wing it over and over and over, and then it's magically going to work. You have to try. You have to get good at it. You have to improve yourself consciously. And I think that that's something that's not communicated very often. I think we're encouraged to just kind of wing it and then... If it doesn't work, then, well, it must not have been the right right person. Wing it again. Wing it next time. Just roll the dice over and over without really doing a lot of introspection. And this book seemed to encourage a lot of that. Yeah, exactly. I think, like, the first page kind of states the problem where it says, like, most people see the problem of love primarily as that of being loved rather than that of loving, of one's capacity to love. Uh, and hence the problem is for them, is how to be loved, how to be lovable. Uh, and the pursuit of this is they look for, they look to cultivate things like their looks and their money. And he kind of talks about this, um, this kind of like market, uh, almost like a meat market uh, in today's society where it's like basically you, you want to cultivate quantifiable qualities of yourself, uh, which you can use to essentially trade for something equal to what you can offer. And that's why people put a lot of value on, you know, how they look or how successful they are, how much money they have and the stuff they have instead of cultivating the uh, actual qualities that lead to fulfilling relationships. Yeah, doesn't he compare it to like uh, basically becoming uh, lovable in quotes uh, to a lot of people amounts to like being more popular mm -hmm. and good at stuff. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, attractive, I think, is, a, the, is the term that he uses. Yeah, it's just... Being attractive package. That's the one. So I want to get into some of his ideas for, you know, what it actually takes to to love correctly. Um, he's got some really interesting ideas about why love of the self is actually not a contradiction for um, love of other people. Like there's kind of this idea that if you love yourself, you're actually narcissistic, you're selfish. Uh, and that is like the opposite of being a loving person. But he kind of he kind of argues like the opposite is true. Self-love is required to love others correctly. But let's get into like the philosophy of this at first, because I thought it was interesting how he sort of established the reason that we need love in the first place. Um, and that was all about like separation, right? Yeah, yeah. He goes into how like the human condition mm -hmm. is just we need to overcome our feeling of separateness. He he made some remarks as to how uh, in the womb we are basically one with our mothers. Mm, that's right, yeah. And then when we're born, uh, we don't really notice it yet, but, it, but soon after we find out that things are different than us. Our environment is separate from us, mm -hmm. whereas in the womb, it's all basically you. The world is you as far as you're aware. Yeah. And... He went through a whole lot of examples and several types of ways that people try to overcome their separateness. But his main point is that humans want to feel some sense of unity. Right. And I think he did make a point of also saying like the reason that we are so afraid of the separateness and everything is because we are the only organisms that realize we're mortal. And that have to live with the knowledge that we'll die. And uh, at least in his vision, and I would say it's probably pretty accurate to say like most other animals and, you know, forms of life on this planet aren't either aren't aware they will die or maybe they are aware, but it's not something that uh, gives them an existential crisis on a Tuesday afternoon. Yeah. Like they're not thinking about the future so much. Yeah. That they're just I like, think I need food. And that's about it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like most organisms are probably pretty good at living in the present and saying, that's right. dangerous, I'm going to go now, or I'm safe, I'm going to rest. Yeah. Like, so he kind of as establishes... To, what do I do in 20 years? I don't know. Exactly, yeah. I don't even think it's like a... It's, it is that, what do I do in 20 years, that uncertainty, but it's also just like this knowledge that like, I am separate from everything else because of my knowledge of my mortality and the pain of that knowledge, the pain of knowing that my life is temporary uh, is overwhelming. So I need to do something to avoid it or to, you know, to dull it or to get it out of my life. Um, and he kind of establishes like the overall idea of being connected to other people as the way to get rid of that separation or to overcome it. So I think he had like five uh, ways that people do this. Uh, one being the first one that everyone does, which is parental love. And uh, the, the parental love area is the one disagreement I have with the book. And it also, it's it's the one area where uh, you realize that, yes, this person did write this 65 years ago. So there are some archaic beliefs, I believe. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's dive into that one before we get into the other ones. Um so he talks about parental love and he talks about how like there's maternal and the per and the paternal love. And the one part I disagreed with uh, was maybe maybe I disagree with the entire conception of. Um, what are they called? Unconditional love and conditional love being essentially feminine and masculine. Oh, yeah. I think the genderification of yeah. those types of love is probably a little archaic, but I do mm -hmm. think that the idea, like what it, what it boils down to is that he claims maternal love is more of an unconditional love and that paternal love is more of a you have to earn my love right. kind of situation. And if you just take away maternal and paternal, ignore the genderification of those ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting that he's claiming that humans need to grow up with both an unconditional love, you are worth being loved, you are, you are useful as you are, and also a conditional one, 
that right. teaches us we can have some control. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the main reason that I, well, I mean, I think I disagree with the conception of the gender, the gender separation uh, as a whole, but like the main, the main prickly point, I think that a lot of people are going to hit in this book is when he says like um, someone who is not, uh, not heterosexual, they are lacking a component they were like, of that. Yeah, they were like so it's missing like, one of the right. So you're like fundamentally, your ability that, to love is hampered if you have that sexual attachment. And I think that's the archaic, outdated belief. Yeah, that that, he held. that was the part of the book where I was like, yeah, that's old, but mm-hmm. really, this so was I do have to say with the psychology of the time. So you just kind of exactly, have to and you can kind of tell like Fromm's philosophy is in itself a bit of an evolution and a step forward from Freudian philosophy. Uh, or psych psychoanalysis where like Freud was like ultra focused on the sexual things and from starts to move out of that, but it's, it's still not where we are today. No. And I don't know that he would, uh, I'm sure that he would be able to adjust these theories a little bit Yeah, with the data that is available to us. Yeah, in, exactly. Uh, 2016. Cause I mean, he is, he is going off of like psychoanalytic data, data from, from half of a century ago so that's that's the one like footnote i have about this book the one thing that really stuck out to me is like oh no i don't actually agree with that yeah yeah if any of you go out to read this book just know that there's that like one line yep where you're gonna be like i don't know about that but but i I gotta say like the rest of it was i thought was really uh kind of eye-opening especially the end part of it so i wouldn't like not recommend the book because of that one line i would just to say like you know no book should be taken completely at face value no book should be treated as like this thing upon an altar that is coming giving you like ultimate wisdom like it's obviously you need you to be thinking it. critically to everything and integrating what is good into your worldview like bruce lee says adapt what is useful um but i do like i do think the concept of this need for both unconditional and conditional love is very interesting and it, it was i think it would be easy to assume that conditional love is a bad thing right because you're like well unconditional love is good because they love me for who i am why would i need you know have any need for conditional love where i must do something to uh win the approval of someone but actually he kind of breaks down the good and the bad of both because with unconditional love the good is that you don't have to worry about doing anything about living up to any certain standard to have that, you know? And I would say like, it, it is probably more common for the mother to show more of that just because the mother is the one that usually spends most time taking care of a baby. It's not always the way it works, but I know like that's definitely the way it worked in my family. My dad went to work and my mom was the one home taking care of me. The bad, the bad end, though, is if that love is absent as a child or in any other stage of your life, because it is unconditional, that means you can't attain it. So if you're missing that from your life, it's like very frustrating because it's absent and there's no way for you to do something to get it back or there is no way for yeah, you, you have to have no it, control. You know, you're come just... into your life. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's the uh, the advantage of conditional love, which he posits as fatherly love, where father is like you need to be like me you need to uphold these rules i have you need to live up to these standards that uh i believe are good and right ways to live and if you do then you have won my love and my approval and if you don't then you will be punished and i will try to discipline you to change you so it's uh on one hand it's like oh well i don't or i don't get your love unless i act in a certain way that can seem bad but on the other hand you can say like that is love that is attainable through my own actions. I have control. I have uh, efficacy over that. Yeah, and I think really he emphasizes that these are like most important during your childhood development mm-hmm. to like teach you you can control things and to teach you that you're worth Oh, that's something. right. Yeah, because he, he does go into because that. Because later on you're, you're, he posits that you like assimilate them into how right. you love afterward as an adult, how you see yeah, when you're a kid, your your fatherly love comes from your father. Your motherly love comes from your mother, according to him. And then when you grow up and you mature, you internalize both. Yeah. Uh, and they become parts of you and you become a more mature, capable person. So they're kind of like an emotional training mm-hmm. of sorts, a love training. Yeah, exactly. 
So going back to the ways he talks about being connected, he talks about the parental love. Um, and then he talks about like one of the first ways that humanity connected to each other were through what he called orgiastic experiences. And that could include things like sex, but it also could include things like taking drugs together. Um, any sort of trance. Any sort of trance. Yeah, trance, trantic experience, those kind of things. Um, that's that's part. And then he also talks about like the worship of deities. So religion comes into it. And uh, regardless of like what your religion may be and what you believe in it, it, it does like every religion has a component of connecting the person either to other people or to a deity. So it is a way to be separate from that mortality and from that knowledge that your life is temporary. Um, and then he talks about like societal attachment, basically through like basically cultural norms. You are part of America because you do American things or you're part of, uh, you know, Japan because you do Japanese things or you're part of your work because you do the things that the people at your work do. So everyone adheres to these cultural norms to feel connected to society, essentially. Yeah, he, he goes a lot into a just like a lot of things that I've read in the last year, actually, about how a sense of community is just incredibly important mm -hmm. for happiness in general. Yeah, exactly. And actually, so um, there is this this uh, second chapter. So this book is only three chapters, but the first chapter is 76 pages long. It's a, it's a pretty short book overall. I think it's like 120 odd pages. So it won't take long to read. But yeah, a good like over half of it is the first chapter, which is on the theory of love. But then he talks about love and its disintegration in contemporary Western society. And I think this is where he's talking about societal attachment because he talks a bit about how capitalism sort of commoditizes everything and he has this uh this quote here he says modern capitalism needs men who cooperate smoothly and in large numbers who want to consume more and more and whose tastes are standardized and can be easily influenced and anticipated it needs men who feel free and independent not subject to any authority or principle or conscious yet willing to be commanded to do what is expected of them to fit into the social machine without friction, who could be guided without force, led without leaders, prompted without aim, except the one to make good, to be on the move, to function, to go ahead. And what he says about like, as society gets bigger and bigger, as business gets more and more concentrated into fewer and fewer hands and more and more people become essentially cogs in the machine is what he's saying, is that men become alienated from their communities and life becomes just this pursuit of maximum profit, maximum efficiency. And I, I think like there, there is a grain of truth there. I, would you agree? I mean, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think that naturally, and you can just look at this, like the way capitalism has developed, it, eventually we're all more focused on like moving up in our jobs. Mm -hmm. We're all more focused on success and efficiency. Whereas I don't, know any of my neighbors names nor do i really care so the right. sense of community is is much much different than it would have been back when we didn't have to worry about what was happening 300 miles away because we could sustain ourselves entirely here yeah exactly the the world was smaller in a way yeah or bigger depending on how you want to look at that you could say it either way but now, when I read this chapter, yeah, I didn't get this like dystopian, brave new world idea of the. It wasn't as if like a shiny veneer was being torn off of my view of the world as it is, and yeah. oh no, I saw like the horrible underbelly of what the world truly is, and we need to overthrow everything and, and become create a prog rock album. Yeah, and, yeah, become the band. Yes, um, that's not what I saw because I agreed with part of it. I think that modern society is indeed set up in a way to encourage the commoditization of life and of labor. And, and it does encourage people to focus more on pursuits that do connect them less to their communities. But we also have a lot of freedom to change that and to make deliberate decisions to be more connected with people and to focus less on the need to acquire things and to kind of be as efficient as possible. Um, and I don't think that it requires going next door and particularly becoming best friends with your next door neighbor. 
Well, that's good because I didn't want to. You know, yeah. I mean, this guy wrote this in 1950, but um, we have ways of connecting to people that are very far away from us. If you've got friends in different cities and different states, different countries, like I know I have very filling relationships with people who do not live in my state um, because I get to see them often enough when I travel or I talk to them on Skype and stuff like that. And one thing I learned about in a marketing class of mine back in high school is that um, basically there's this concept of component lifestyles where back in the 50s and before people sort of identified as like doing one thing. And now it's sort of broken up into like I am. Uh, well, actually, we were talking about like Twitter bios the other day. Oh, yeah. Like I'm, a, you know, skateboarder, guitar player, blah, 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 blah. I'm all these things. Uh, and in marketing, this is called like the component lifestyle concept where your life is segmented into several components where you have little mini identities. You, you are the skateboarder. You are the, the musician. You are the programmer if you happen to work at a programming place. And I think you can have very fulfilling relationships in all of these little components, which might be with different people than who live right next to you. But it is just about like being deliberate about listening to them and trying to build a relationship with them rather than just diverting or, you know, making it all a diversion for fun. So that's, that's kind of what I took from that chapter. I don't know. Maybe it was like a Marxist hell for you, but <laughs> now that's, I mean, it's not like we're not allowed to go form senses of community. It's just, it, it's not as automatic. It's not as ingrained into what will happen. You can yeah. choose to join a whole bunch of clubs. You can do volunteer work. You can have friends. You can be really close with a large family. You can choose to do these things. It's just as not as automatic because we get distracted by how am I going to make more money to pay my bills more easily so that I can do more things. You're distracted. And like... Mm-hmm. Maybe it would have been scary if he was like, and you have no choice. <laughs> the world is over. But you can absolutely choose to feel more connected to a group if you want to. Yeah, exactly. So on this idea of the theory of love, um, one of the most interesting things was that he discourages the idea that you need to imbue certain people or certain objects with the majority of your love. I think he actually, he he discourages the idea that love is something to imbue into any specific thing. And rather, he advocates this concept that love is something that you do and it's something that should be given equally to both yourself and to every living thing. Now, obviously, there's different qualities of love. There's erotic love, which is between two people that have decided to be in a relationship. Um, you know, there's brotherly love which he posits as not just to your family, not just to your tribe, but to all people. And then there's like the paternal and things like that and love of deities as well. But um, I think the, the most interesting was like this whole, this whole uh, section about how self-love and selfishness are actually opposite terms. Um, I think when he talks about selfishness is like... Um, this idea that you either love yourself or you love other people. And if you love yourself, you cannot love other people. And I think he, he kind of nixes that in favor of an idea where loving yourself is basically just a way to be confident in yourself, to be able to do it for other people as well. I don't know. I, I guess I'm not articulating it well. How, how did you interpret it? Well, I really just interpreted it kind of the same. But you don't like you don't have to not love other people to love yourself. And mm. in fact, loving yourself, if not done in a ridiculous narcissistic way, uh, will in general make you maybe better capable of loving the other people around right. you because you can appreciate things more. Right, right. Yeah. So I suppose like this, that's like selfishness is if you're only caring about what you can take from life, only caring about what uh you want and he actually says that if you're like this you actually hate yourself um you don't love yourself because if you did love yourself you would want to give all that you can to other people so 
I want to talk about what is probably the most useful part of this book, which is the practice of love. Um, and it is the shortest chapter. And it kind of starts it out like with this disclaimer that like, if you think this is a self-help book where I'm going to give you like 15 tips to, to love better, like it's, you're going to be sorely disappointed because it's not, we should have done that for this podcast. 15 tips to be a better lover. Yeah. <laughs> that should have been the title of this episode. It's, it's too late. It still can be. Well, I we're going to need to throw in yet. 15 tips. It's true. It's not going to be. It's not going to I'm going to go <laughs> just not do that. Yeah. Um. Oh, I did want to make one note about brotherly love before we get into this. Because yeah. actually I thought this was really insightful. So he sort of talks about, you know, the, like the golden rule. Like in elementary school, they were always like, live by the golden rule. Do unto others as you would prefer them to do unto you, right? Yeah. And he kind of talks about like how this is sort of a perversion of the original love thy neighbor as thyself idea of brotherly love because do unto others as you would have them do unto you is an expression of fairness. It's like fairness ethics. Um, I do this for you in exchange. You do this for me. It's fair. And what he says, is like, brotherly love isn't about fairness ethics it's about feeling responsible for the well-being of other people as much as you do for yourself instead of being like i did my part so you go do your part he kind of actually he kind of establishes these two concepts as opposite whereas brotherly love is a connected feeling fairness ethics are are feelings of separation i've done my part now you go do yours you go do you i'm gonna do me that kind of stuff and it reminded me of like have you ever been in a restaurant or maybe like a movie theater where someone just like leaves their popcorn and pop in the seat and then someone's like, dude, you should clean that up. And they say, oh, well, that's the worker's job to do. Like that's their job. So it's like you justify basically being a dick by saying, yeah, it, oh, this person is being paid to clean up after me. Like it's fair. They, they are serving me because they're being paid to and I've paid for my ticket so I can basically be a dick. And it's totally yeah, cool. As long as you've done your bare minimum. Yeah. The social fair. contract has been established. Whereas, so that's like the, that's the golden rule thing. That's like the fairness thing. And I don't even know if it's the golden rule specifically, but it's like, it's definitely thinking in terms of what's fair and the brotherly love way to think about it would be like, no, that person in the vest with the name tag, like, yeah, they're getting paid to work here, but I should care about them as much as I care about myself. And if it was me doing that, like I wouldn't want someone to just think of me that way. Like I would want them to feel responsible and to try to make my day as good as it possibly can be. And I'm going to try to make their day as good as it can possibly be. And I think when you think in those terms, you stop thinking so selfishly and you start thinking about like, what can I do to make someone else's day a little bit better? This is why every time when I go into the coffee shop, I like make sure to thank the person when they're done with my drink, even if they've like kind of moved on. I just like say it to them because I know what it's like to work in a crappy food, like fast food place. And I'm sure like they're having a pretty lame day, probably just like being bored at work. People are rushing them and complaining. And I'm like, all right, I want to make their day a little bit better because they care. And hopefully other people will do that same thing as well. Instead of just being like, well, I paid for my drink. I don't have to say anything. I'm going to leave. Yeah. So it's like a more full version of the golden rule, if anything, rather than like yeah. the bare minimum. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess you could state the golden rule the same way. Um, do yeah, unto it's others just as you how well do, do you enforce it is but really it's, what it's makes a, the difference. It's a different underlying motivation. Fairness ethics say do unto others as they would have them do unto you because you want them to do unto you a certain way. Whereas the opposite concept is do unto others as you would have them do to you because you want them to be happy because you care about them and you want yeah, the best like, for them. Like even if they don't do the same thing back necessarily, you're just yeah being good. Right. And that's much more conducive to what Fromm's underlying motivation for everything we do is, which is to cut down on the pain of separation and to feel more connected. Yeah. I really thought it was interesting. Uh, I, I believe he said that the fairness sort of ethics, that transactional idea of fairness ethics is, I believe he said, one of the, like, biggest things that we've got morally out of capitalism, like one of the biggest things that developed out of that. 
mm-hmm. was just because so many things are transactional. So this idea right. of what becomes fair either way was very well developed now. Yeah, because I mean, in his terms, everything's been like boiled down to what you can offer on the market and everything can be quantified, um, which reminds me of uh, the Crash Course episode on money, which is Crash Course World History uh, season two. I don't remember which episode it is, but it's the money one. And I'll link to it in the show notes. Talks about this theory that's uh, espoused by David Graeber in his book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, where he posits basically the opposite of what economists have always said about the formation of money. Because economists always say, oh, there was barter economies where people were trading like half of their goat for a sack of barley. And then they all were like, that's inefficient. Let's make money instead. And uh, what uh, anthropologists find is there is no recorded example of a barter economy. Instead, there were just tight-knit societies that traded things on debt. So it's like, hey, dude, I need a a sickle to cut down my field. Can I borrow one? And then you're like, sure. And then there's kind of like this unstated knowledge that like I did you a solid and then you'll do me a solid later on. But it's not quantified. It's not like tit for tat. I like you. It was not expecting general like help me out. Yeah. It's not like, oh, you owe me that exact sickle. It's like, oh, actually, I need some food for my goat. Do you have any? And they're like, yeah, sure. Like people lived in these tight knit societies and they owe everyone owes everything to everyone because they just work together. And once the development of currency became kind of ubiquitous, now you have a way to form debt that is impersonal, quantifiable and transferable. So no longer is it person A and person B are inextricably linked to each other through unspoken debts. It's now, oh, I lent you 20 bucks and I can sell that debt to some faceless corporation and now you owe 20 bucks to them. And there was no bond of love. There was no bond of caring. There was nothing there uh, to keep you guys to, uh, connected except for this obligation that has been quantified. And when everything becomes that way, it becomes so much harder to connect to people because everything is, ter- is framed in terms of quantified exact fair exchanges so Hmm. when he talks about the uh practice of becoming a a better i don't want to say the word lover because that's like i think the connotation is like erotic lover it's this isn't as steamy as it sounds it really isn't the practice of being better at love in all its forms um turned out to be mainly a chapter about how to be a good person Right. Yeah, and it had it had that aspect, mm-hmm. and it also had like the just you need to be disciplined about this side of it. This sort right. of this is a this is a real art. You need to treat it as if it were an art, which means that you have to actually care enough to improve your abilities at it, which is making yeah. you a better person. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, a lot of my favorite stuff came out of that last chapter. Mine too. Yeah, I mean, I I would still recommend reading the whole thing so you can kind of get the foundation. But the last chapter, I think, holds the most usable. Yeah, I think it's the most like uh, adaptable to Mm -hmm. your personal life. A lot of it, I got to say, a lot of it, you're going to read it and you're going to go. At least I did. I read it and I was like, well, obviously, but it's one of those things where it's like stated and thrown out in the open. It's like, no, you need to do this. And maybe you have heard this before, but... Uh, oh yeah, because we all we know to how to do tons of things that would be good, but it doesn't mean we yeah actually take the time to exactly. Do it. So he talks about um, love being an art, and he says first we have to define what goes into the practice of any art, and uh, he specifically talks about mastery of an art requiring discipline, concentration, and patience. Uh, especially with discipline. And this is this is like the first thing where I was like, yeah, this is everything, not just love. Because he says like, uh, first of all, the practice of an art requires discipline. I shall never be good at anything if I do not do it in a disciplined way. Anything I do if uh, only if I am in the mood, quote unquote, may be a nice or amusing hobby, but I should never become a master in the art. Oh, this is the second time you've literally just same exact quote that I highlighted. Did you ever write it down? Yeah. <laughs> yep, right I got here. my book flag like right it's in a good, there. It's a good quote. Yeah. 
And he says, but the problem is not only that, uh, not only that of discipline in the practice of the particular art, say practicing every day for a certain amount of hours, but it is that of discipline of one's whole life. One might think that nothing is easier to learn for modern man than discipline. Does he not spend eight hours a day in a most disciplined way at a job, which is strictly routinized? And this was, I think this was really insightful here because he talks about like the fact that we go to work and the fact that we go through these highly structured, strict schedules during the day actually encourages us to push that stuff away in other pursuits, which is why I think so many people have their jobs and then, and then relaxation, right? Oh yeah, I actually highlighted this huge passage about the same thing. I'm sure you have it over there. I have um, oh, here it is. Yeah. Uh, so he says, "How does one practice discipline?" Our grandfathers would have been much better equipped to answer this question. Their recommendation was to get up in the morning, not to indulge in unnecessary luxuries, and to work hard. This type of discipline has obvious shortcomings. It was rigid and authoritarian. Was centered around the virtues of frugality and saving, and in many ways was hostile to life. But in reaction to this kind of discipline, there has been an increasing tendency to be suspicious of any discipline and to make undisciplined, lazy indulgence in the rest of one's life the counterpart and balance for the routinized way of life imposed on us during the eight hours of work. To get up at a regular hour, to devote a regular amount of time during the day to activities like meditating, reading, listening to music, walking, not to indulge, at least not beyond a certain minimum, escapist activities like mystery stories or movies or I guess video games he would say today and not to overeat or overdrink are some obvious and rudimentary rules it's essential however that discipline should not be practiced like a rule imposed on oneself from the outside but that it becomes an expression of one's own will that it is felt as pleasant and that one slowly accustoms oneself to a kind of behavior which one eventually would miss if one stopped practicing it so I think basically he's saying like the whole like eight hours of work and school and all the crap we go to makes it really tempting to react to that negatively in your free time and be like, no, I just worked an eight hour day. I just did all this stuff. Everyone told me to do and followed all the rules. I'm going to go do whatever I want now. Yeah. You're like never... rebelling because right. you've been forced to use discipline towards things you didn't want to do. Exactly. Why should you trust discipline? But the problem is like the division of labor and, and, you know, specialization means that you're spending that eight hours doing one thing that is not necessarily meant to make you a better person in any way, but is instead meant to maximize the profits of whoever you're working for, yeah. even if it's yourself. Right. Yeah. And I really think that that uh, that's an important part is whether anything is being seen through the eyes of who is really disciplining you, mm -hmm. because when. Even when you're doing something like maybe maybe if I go to exercise, if I feel like fine, I'll go exercise because everybody tells me I'm supposed to exercise, then I might I'll feel like it's a chore. I won't it won't feel like it's me. It won't feel like my will was I'm going to create myself as a healthier person. Then maybe I would feel when I exercised like I had power, like I could change things. Right. But if I view it as something that other people are forcing me to do, then it's going to seem unwelcome. Yeah, exactly. So it has to be rooted in some underlying motivation you have yourself. I can't tell you and make you want something just by the virtue of me telling you about it. Yeah. So he goes on to talk about concentration. And I kind of skipped around a little bit because he, he sort of defines discipline, concentration, and patience before talking about you know the practice of discipline, which I uh read from that that bit about rejecting discipline in free time was from that area um i think he talked about like concentration really is rooted in the ability to focus on one thing at one time and this is where i started drawing parallels to deep work which is the book that cal newport uh wrote and that i had i think it was episode 100 we talked about there were actually several parallels to other books that I found in this book, which kind of were like weird. Like, you know, that book I said I put down at the strand uh, because it was hardcover. Yeah. It was like mindware tools for better thinking or something like that. It'll be in the show notes. I haven't read it yet, but I, I opened to a random page in the strand and it was talking about um, normal like Greek logical reasoning versus Eastern dialectic reasoning and how like Eastern dialectic reasoning uh it embraces paradox more and, uh, you know, Greek logic kind of 
says no paradox can't exist, that kind of stuff. Uh, this book actually referenced that, which I found very weird because yeah, so I, just like, the weirdest connections between these books. Yeah, I almost like specifically picked up the art of loving because it seemed like the antithesis to like this cold, logical, improve your brain book. Um, and then there's parallels to that. And then this concentration that was just being like, you need to learn to act uh, in, in one focused way. You need to learn to be by yourself without reading, listening to the radio, smoking, drinking, whatever. And um, once you can do that, he says, the, the paradoxically, the ability to be alone is the condition for the ability to love. Anyone who tries to be alone with himself will discover how difficult it is. He will begin to feel restless, fidgety, or even to sense considerable anxiety, and he will be prone to rationalize his unwillingness to go on with this practice by thinking it has no value, it's just silly, it takes too much time, so on and so on and so forth. And when you're unable to concentrate in your own life, then your ability to concentrate on your relationship with one other person, uh, to listen, I think this is the most important thing, to listen without looking away or having the compulsion to check your phone or to do something else and to listen and not be at the same time trying to formulate your own clever responses to actually listen and try to really get yourself in the other person's head and understand how they're feeling. That ability is diminished when you're unable to concentrate in any uh, capacity. So meditation equals being better at loving, I guess. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, it's cool. Meditation's good. Yeah, I you probably meditate a lot more than I do. All the time. Uh, actually, I barely meditate Tons. anymore. Um, and I'm okay with that. Like, I've, I think I've, I'm have i cultivating some other habits right now that uh, I'm okay kind of doing those in isolation for a while. But for, for a good long time, I did meditate just for like three minutes a day. And I would try to focus on like counting my breath. But... I know there are other ways to meditate and all of them can help to uh, build your ability to focus. What exactly do you do when you meditate? Do you just be present? Do you have like any sort of like breathing exercise or do you try to concentrate on any one thing? Uh, well, it depends. Most of the time I'm trying to blank out most thoughts and focus mm. on like feeling how is my body positioned? How am I breathing? Just kind of noticing things. And it's really helpful because I'm trying to work on my posture and things like that. So it's a lot of just how am I existing right now and trying to shut out other thoughts so that I'm not thinking, what am I going to do after I'm done meditating? I'm kind of hungry. Like that would defeat the whole purpose, you know? That's, so it's, <laughs> it's a lot of just being in the moment. It's I'm trying yes. to be as present as possible. I deal with that problem so often. It's so often when I'm doing one thing and I am thinking about the next thing I'm going to do. Or, or the last thing I want to do. And yeah. actually, yeah, so he talks about in that in this now. book. He kind of does. Um, one thing I remember I'm talking about was people kind of imbuing their love in nostalgia, like remembering relationships in the past as better than they were, but then not really giving a whole lot of thought to what's currently going on or thinking that, you know, 10 years down the line, we're going to have such a great relationship. We'll be so in tune with one another, but then you're not, you're not thinking about the now. Yeah, and if you're not you know, trying in the now, then I don't know how 10 years from now is going to be mm -hmm. magically better. Yeah, exactly. I think this is all just building up to this ultimate conclusion that like to be good at loving other people and loving yourself, you have to cultivate the same qualities that allow you to be good at any art, discipline, concentration, and the last one being patience. Um, he says to have an idea of what patience is, one only need watch a child learning to walk falls and falls again and falls again and yet it goes on trying and proving until one day it walks without falling what could the grown-up person achieve if he had the child's patience and its concentration in the pursuits that are important to him and uh i thought about this in terms of relationships in general because relationships always have rocky parts like always they have bad things that happen and in my previous relationships when i was a less mature person i would let those get to me and i would let those those bad parts like basically tell me, oh, well, this is an indication that this isn't working. I need to get out. Um, and what I have tried very hard to do, and it's very challenging, is anytime something goes wrong in my current relationship with Anna, I try to 
basically calm my mind and tell myself this will pass. We will work through this. There will not be, you know, it's, it can't be perfect. It can't be this trend line upward forever like we talked about in the last episode. And also, it may well be my fault. Like, I'm not going to, it's very easy to get defensive and assume that whatever the other person did was the wrong thing. Um, but I try to force my brain to think like, okay, I could have a part of the fault in this or all of the fault. And I, I'm going to let this kind of cool down, simmer down, like we talked about and learn helpless this episode, and then come back and ask like, okay, what did I do wrong? What did you do wrong? Let's talk about this rationally. And it requires a lot of patience and it's very frustrating, but you're just trying to be more conscious of how yes. you, of how you handle things rather exactly. than just saying things aren't perfect. My emotions say things are bad because I'm upset mm-hmm. and therefore everything's ruined. You're just trying yeah. to stop and say, wait a second. Like it's, a, it's as if it were an art, you know, like if I'm playing the piano, I'm learning a cool new song and I know it's going to be just this fantastic thing, mm-hmm. but I screw it up a couple of times. I don't freak out and throw my piano away. Do I? Yeah. Not that I could lift it, but there, it would be, I mean, obviously this doesn't mean never end your relationship. Right. But it, but it means that sometimes you just got to sit back and be like, okay, is this, is this, bad you have to be more conscious of what's going on in the present moment don't blind yourself and assume things are better in the future mm-hmm. but what can you do now i can't remember if this book talked about it but i did read about somewhere her like you know a lot of marriages are arranged a lot of times couples don't meet each other until the wedding night and we think that that practice is you know horrible we're like well you're not letting people fall in love on their uh, of their own accord and then those cultures that do it will will counteract that notion with this whole idea of like it's not about falling in love it's about standing in it it's about building something together um you know and the rates of divorce are much lower in a lot of those cultures now i will attribute part of that maybe even a majority of it to societal norms that discourage divorce but there is potentially a component of that um in the absence of this idea that you fall in love with your soulmate, with the one, with the person you are compatible with, quote unquote, and uh, the replacement of that ideal with a different ideal of you must build something together. It will take a long time. It will be tough, but you're building it together and you don't know what it's going to look like when you start. And that takes patience. I think a good way to think about it would be in terms of like, like think of your relationship like a sport you practice maybe or like a or like an instrument you practice like you said piano i remember uh monday when i went to skating practice it was like one of my worst days ever um my coach was trying to teach me to spin and i was just just totally screwing up i could not do it i was super frustrated and i felt like sick for an hour after practice because i was so nauseous from spinning and uh, even like the stuff i had already practiced i was doing really badly at and then today i got there and it was like the best day ever. Like everything went perfectly. It all came together. And I'm like, I've got a competition coming up in a few days. And I'm like, holy crap, I'm ready. Every move that I was just completely screwing up on Monday, I'm doing excellent now. So, you know, obviously I shouldn't have thrown away my skates on Monday. It's just come back and try another day. And you're going to, you're going to be better. Now you, you talked about how like you, you can't just always rely on this. Like there are situations where you should end a relationship. Um, there is definitely an element of compatibility in here. And one of the things you do need to be very cognizant of is that the other person should be trying to have these same qualities in their life. You know, if they're ultimately a selfish person, then you don't need to try to stick with them. But I do think a lot of our relationships end because we fail to be patient. We fail to actually listen and we fail to try to work through these rocky uh, parts of the relationships. I'm sorry I was uh, listening in the moment. I wasn't prepared with a clever <laughs> a clever statement after that. That's the problem with podcasting. Oh, yeah. that That is the problem. You can't love in podcasting, Martin. You have to nope. have, you That's have true. To have clever This is a business, Martin. Yeah. Get with it. Business. Um, so those were the three components of any arts mastery, discipline, concentration, patience. 
And then he talked mainly about one love specific thing you need to master. And that was the, uh, the practice of overcoming what he calls narcissism and moving into objectivity. So what he means by that is that you need to work towards seeing things as they are instead of how they affect you. It's an objective view of reality instead of a very self-centered view of reality. And you have to be this way with everyone, not just with family, not just with your girlfriend or boyfriend. Like instead of saying, oh, like I think he gave this, uh, this example of a woman who calls a doctor and she's like, hey, I need to get an appointment. Um, can I come in today? And he's like, no, actually I'm all booked up today. And her immediate response is, well, I'm only, you know, five minutes down the road. And, you know, her, her response is only based on how close she is to the doctor, how little time it will take her to get there. But she had absolutely no consideration for his schedule. So her view of reality was warped. And the only conditions that mattered were the ones that affected her. And uh, that's not a very good way to love other people because other people's experiences are separate from how you feel. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I really like... I really like how the how he gave examples like that. They're so easily relatable. Mm-hmm. Just as to how do we view the world as centering around us in some way. Yeah, exactly. And I think sometimes when we're like, oh, this is a bad day, it's because like things happened that weren't exactly, uh, you know, synchronized with our perfect view of how a day should go. But it wasn't actually a bad day. It just didn't go exactly how we wanted it to go. Um, and we put a little bit of that negativity bias in there when multiple things happen. They aren't exactly how our narcissistic view of reality should be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tons of negativity bias. It's very easy to fall victim to that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I did like, he talked about education. I can't remember which part of the book that this was in, but it was in my notes. And there was a quote I did want to say, cause he talked about how like, uh, the loving view of education is to believe that every person has potential to become better. Um, And he said that the opposite of education is manipulation, which is based on the absence of faith in the growth of potentialities and on the conviction that a child will be right only if adults put into him what is desirable and suppress what is undesirable. And that really spoke Hmm. to me because I think there, there kind of is this, uh, there's often this, this goal to simply teach a specific curriculum to to mold somebody in the way that you think they should be instead of letting them turn into the person that they should be. This is one of those things that uh, should I ever become a parent, I will try to keep like burrowed into my mind. Like my child will not be exactly how I want them to be because they have potential and I can't predict exactly what that potential will manifest itself as. I can just hope and try to subtly guide it in the right direction. Yeah. And in a way that's less selfish, you know, so it is just abiding by the treating others as you would want to treat yourself. Exactly. You would want yourself to have the freedom to pursue things mm-hmm. and, uh, fulfill your talents as they come in whatever direction they come. Yeah. You want to be the master of your own destiny. So you should let other people do that as well because their desire isn't any different. So the way I wanted to end this is I wanted to ask you like what qualities or what practices, and they don't necessarily have to have come from this book, but is there anything that you have specifically tried to keep in mind or tried to do in your current relationship with your girlfriend to make it develop better? Well, I know that, I mean, obviously this is probably, I could probably come up with a better answer given time, but I do know that I make a point to support support her in the creative projects and she's doing and try to keep in mind what she's going through and what kind of what kind of struggles there might be coming up or what kind of situations are going on as opposed to just help me with my stuff. I'm always very very conscious of how I can be giving back and helping her with her personal journey towards things that she's trying to do that have mm. nothing to do with me because her success in the art world or in anything has that that part is really separate 
from me. It's completely not touching me, but I make a point to try and help her with that just as she tries to help me work through things that really have no bearing on the time that she spends with me. Mm. So it's a, I try to not be selfish in that way. So we're focused on helping each other improve as individuals Mm. and also as a couple. I like that a lot. So your focus isn't only on, you know, how can I guide this person to understand me better or to yeah it's not how can i make her a better my ideal version of relationship it's how can i help her be a better person in the way Mm -hmm. that she wants to be and how can i be a better person in the way i want to be rather than saying our destiny is to just be a really good couple we're both people in addition to that okay cool um the one i wanted to mention there's a lot of things i've learned um especially the the patience thing but I think the biggest thing that I have learned about relationships is that you cannot be entirely focused on solutions when problems come up. Um, and at risk of sounding sexist, I think this is something that guys might do a little more often than girls potentially. Uh, well, you wipe away the sexism by just saying society made it happen. It was society society's sexist, so the yeah, results sometimes look sexist yeah you know in my experience i usually get like a uh-huh i do this to reaction from guys more often but i have always had this tendency to whenever a problem comes up doesn't it doesn't matter if it's my girlfriend or from somebody else i'm like well let's figure out how to solve it or it's like oh oh well i know how to solve it let's, let's fix it right now um and that ended up had one of my girlfriends in the past broke up with me because mainly I did that and I never offered any empathy. I never offered a shoulder to cry on. And I think we talked about this in the learned helplessness episode as well, where like there is this period where, you know, something bad has happened and that's stressful. And the person is not in the state of mind to solve the problem right now. Right now they need to calm down. They need to uh, wipe away the anxiety. And the best thing you can do as a friend as a person who loves them is to be empathetic is to be that person who is there to support them through that hard time. And only once they're ready to solve the problem, to offer a solution. So in the past, I immaturely believed that empathy was just, um, something that like a delay tactic, basically it's like, Oh, well the problem should be solved sooner rather than later. So empathy and, telling everyone it's going to be okay is just this you know just this lie just this thing to let them wallow in pity for a while you know why don't we just solve it now but i now realize that like emotions don't work that way people don't work that way if we were all robots and computers it would work that way but we're not and not yet i need to act in a way that befits my biology <laughs> yeah and my human brain yeah, and the human brain better of way to go else. about it yeah so uh, those are basically all my thoughts on this book at this uh, this time. Do you have anything else to wrap up with or should we just oh, wrap I th- up? I and- think that about covers it. I mean, there's more to mm-hmm. the book. So if any one of you listeners goes out and read it, there, there are more things that he touches on creative activity being a way to overcome separateness, like being yeah. an artist or a, or a farmer or a cook, somebody who becomes one with their craft. I forgot that about section's that section's cool. Yeah. Like there's... There's a lot to be pulled from this if you just read through it and adapt adapt the phrases or the the words that mean the most to your life at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so would you would you recommend the book overall? I think that yeah. Yeah, I would say it's a pretty pretty good book to read as long as you're willing to overlook the 50s psychology. Yeah. part. But I think I would say there are overall. some good lessons to learn from here. Some good, mm-hmm. at least, analogies that you can adapt and make make sense. Yeah, exactly. I haven't honestly, I honestly haven't read that much philosophy, so I can't compare it to any comparable offerings. I do have uh, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius on my shelf that I need to read soon, and uh, my increased reading powers due to this twenty-five page per day challenge may actually oh, yeah, that's give me out. the the confidence I need to work my way through that book. Um, I got to say like 25 pages a day going through like this super dense nutrition science book is uh, 
massively spiking my confidence in my ability to get through other kinds of books. Because for oh, a yeah, while, I feel like nothing later. Yeah, I mean, I think after I quit thinking fast and slow, because it's, it's literally like replace nutrition science with psychology. The book is literally just study result after study result after you know concept, and it's very dense. And I couldn't make my way through it because I didn't have structure and a goal. And I think ever since I quit reading that one, I've like. There's been a little bit of learned helplessness, actually. Oh, yeah. You're just, you're intimidated. <laughs> I can't read those kind of books. Yeah. I can't read big study-based books. Exactly. But now I taught myself that, yes, you can. So um, my confidence has expanded to a, a wider range of material. But overall, I would recommend this book. I think it's a pretty good read. And it's a short one, too. Oh, yeah. It's not that long. You can't deny the uh, value per page here. Yeah, exactly. I think it's pretty high. Yeah, it's pretty high. Um, so if you've listened this far, one thing, uh, I, I would like to hear from you if you want to, there's going to be a discussion thread in the Reddit. Um, I've been putting all the podcast episodes there. I'd be curious to hear from you. Like, what do you guys think about these episodes that are a little more philosophical, a little more based around living a more fulfilling life? Uh, I think all these concepts are kind of integral in the journey to becoming a better person, which is the foundation of being a good student. And, is also kind of the ultimate goal of being a good student. At least I hope it is. I hope your I hope your goal as a student isn't just to make money, isn't just to, uh, as Fromm says, to be able to offer more on the market, uh, commoditized society. I hope it is to fulfill yourself in a more compelling way. Um, but I would also be curious to know why uh if you guys are cool with us discussing books in depth before we've given you guys a chance to read them because i know like on uh hello internet they will sometimes discuss books but they'll usually say like we're going to discuss this book in two weeks so here's your homework if you want to read it beforehand um is that something you guys feel like we should do or do you guys just want us to do analysis of books and then let you read them afterwards i mean we're never going to do like an analysis of uh, we're not going to like spoil Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, today we're going to pull some very it's important lessons idea. out of the newest Game of Thrones book by spoiling everything. <laughs> no, we'll never do that. I mean, it's, it's always going to be nonfiction. So I think it's pretty tough to spoil nonfiction. Um, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. <laughs> you on can't that. spoil facts, Tom. <laughs> uh, no, you can't. I guess you can't. Roses are red. I didn't see a rose yet. Why would you yeah, tell me that? It was coming. I had no idea. You just spoiled history for me, man. <laughs> um, but yeah, let me know your thoughts in the community thread for this episode. You can find the link to that at the show notes, which you'll find over at CIGpodcast.com. And uh, this is episode 107. So check the link on the page for that. And you'll find the link to the discussion thread as well as all the stuff I mentioned uh, earlier in the episode that I would link to. And yeah, I think that's about it. So Thanks for listening so far. And uh, until next week, stay cute.